Hello, everybody. Greetings from Reno, Nevada, where I am performing at the High Desert Steam Steampunk Festival. It's their annual Yule Ball, as we are into November in the time of gold and dark. I hope you're snuggled up somewhere safe and warm and cozy and enjoying a hot cup of cocoa or maybe some coffee. Anyway, here we go. Bosch Mancier, a novel by Strangely Duisberg, read by the author. Chapter 18. Days have slipped into weeks as the time of light grows shorter. As fall prepares to give way to winter, the hours our tattered prophet has to make his meandering rounds about the city diminish. No matter how odd, or at times futile his task seems, he will never abandon it. We all have rituals we must complete every single day, some mundane, others less so. It would not be so outlandish a supposition to infer that some of us even engage in habitual practices others would find archaic. Perhaps a superstition has seized hold of your mind, a knowledge deeper than belief. You are certain that everything depends on you remembering to pull the front door closed in a particular way, or the success of a favored sports team hinges on a certain pair of socks you have pulled on just so. Some folk pray at a specific time of day, entreating a deity to intercede in their affairs. Others are content to beg no one in particular for help in a tight moment. Yet each and every one of these is, for lack of a better term, a ritual. Since long before our known history began, human beings have found comfort in repetition and tradition. Things large and small which provide a structure to our days, our movements, our consciousness itself. So it is with Theo. Though his outward appearance is one of shambling disenfranchisement, Theo is still connected to the world at large in myriad ways. Not just as the owner of the corner pub and the building he lives in, but also as one who maintains observational interest in several charitable organizations around the city. Even those who are aware of his influence would be hard-pressed to connect the charitable windfalls they receive to the shuffling vagrant who passes their premises on his rounds. It is more than probable that the only person other than the pub manager to notice his peculiar regularity is Martin. More than once, the bookshop keeper has noted the almost clockwork nature of Theo's daily rambles, adjusted only for his occasional pronouncements of doom and suffering, of course. Martin had once spoken of this to Adlon. Though not aware of the schedule, the curiophile still surmised that this was the reason the tattered prophet was tolerated in their general vicinity, his predictable timing making him appear less of a threat to all and sundry. Though his travels through the city and their known purposes are of interest, it is Theo's true motivation which is of far greater import. In the opinion of this author, Theo's continuance of his perceived duty is what has truly kept him going. This ongoing task giving him persistence in the face of the great trauma that befell him all those years ago, in that house of dark games. The details of his work escape concise description, but in simplest terms, Theo is weaving a spell. His perambulations, though their order seems random, actually betray a thoughtful progress through the city. Were an observer to map out Theo's movements, they would reveal a path describing an intricate glyph, the streets and byways of the city forming the various lines and curls of the symbol. So too the haphazard collection, modification, and distribution of unrelated objects reveals hidden meaning. Deep inside Theo, in a place he cannot describe, 
and dares not look, lies the seat of a compulsion to complete these errands. Here sits an empty aluminum can atop a waste bin, here a soggy sandwich, and here a discarded newspaper. Though he could never explain it, Theo knows that to shift these objects, even if only slightly, can affect everything. For almost twenty years, Theo has puttered around the neighborhood making these adjustments. Like a tragic pastiche of a groundskeeper, our tattered prophet makes his rounds, rearranging the very fabric of his reality. On days he completes these duties with particular skill, he feels a sense of accomplishment so bone-deep that he almost feels reborn. A man deserving of good things once again, though he has long since given up allowing himself this comfort. The first time this contented feeling came upon him, Theo celebrated with several and a few drinks at his pub. Small wonder that he awoke far later than usual the following day. In a panic he had taken to the streets, dashing about trying to complete his work before sundown. His haste and worry had made him careless, and many things were left unmoved. The following morning Theo awoke to find the corpses of dozens of pigeons lining the sidewalks. Tiny avian bodies burst open as if by minuscule explosives. Though any reasonable person would question the connection between moving an old newspaper from one bin to another and the death of a few birds, Theo is not such a person. Long ago he had lost the part of his mind that questioned such things, trading it along with his soul in the vain hope of an ill-gotten fortune. To him, the death of these birds was his fault, a failing to complete the tasks he was compelled toward. These past weeks have weighed heavy on Theo's mind. Something is very, very wrong. There is an upset in the fabric of things. His adjustments are taking more time to get settled. Though his pace has slowed, his care to details increased. It does no good. Something is growing. Though what, Theo cannot imagine. He would have stayed the course, tried to put things back aright, but the incident with the back-alley tradesfolk has changed his mind. Since the disappearance of those miscreants, Theo has redoubled his efforts, his care and his work approaching a kind of fugue state. Theo pauses his shambling walk on a street corner not three blocks from Martin's bookshop. He reaches out a trembling hand to pull down the last wisps of a poster. The faded lettering advertises a concert by a band that has already separated. He stares a moment at this ephemeral monument to artistic hope. With a nod, he begins to fold the scrap. Intricate manipulations yield a small paper frog. Theo cups the fragile amphibian in his hands as he walks onward. In a voice more like a death rattle than a whisper, he mutters encouragements to the makeshift totem. After two blocks, he stops. With a sigh, he steps backward three steps, then forward one. He has come to rest beneath an ancient vinyl awning. This cracked and crumbling facade is all that remains of a once vibrant cafe, now closed for two winters. The building shares a block with the derelict theater. Theo stops himself from finding a connection. He gulps, trying not to think of gangrenous rot spreading through a body. Fingers trembling, he stands on tiptoe, reaching out and forward with the paper frog. With dainty care, he places it into a fold of the drooping awning. Theo sinks back into his usual slouch and dusts his hands against each other, surveying his work. He nods. The dark clouds in his mind push back. Not as much as he would hope, but enough. Theo turns and shambles down the street, whistling to himself. 
The tuneless noise is only heard by a mouse, sniffing through the wind-blown papers at the base of the ruined cafe. Theo notices it and stops, feeling a cold wash of fear. But it soon passes. The tiny creature is just a mouse. It turns an inquisitive eye up toward him. In the fashion of big city rodents, it does not seem bothered by his presence, and soon continues on its merry little way. Theo heaves a sigh of relief and goes about his business. He is too far away to notice when a long, spindly arm snakes out of a crack in the masonry. The mouse is snatched, dragged squeaking in terror toward the dark interior of the building. The hand clutching it is formed of dead mice, clinging to one another and writhing and bending in terrible unison. For a moment, all is still, and then a taxicab rolls down the street. The driver is so intent on lighting his cigarette that he spares only the briefest of glances for the road. As the cab trundles off into the distance, quiet returns. Once again, the horrible construct surges out of the crack, twisting, writhing mouse bodies moving in eerie harmony. The arm reaches up, up to the cracked and fading awning of the derelict restaurant. With dainty precision not unlike Theo's, it plucks the paper frog from its hiding place. When Theo arrives home, it is well past midnight. Though disposed to be cautious of the darkened hours, he nevertheless feels the time was well spent. Hundreds of small objects have been found, subtly reworked, and placed, just so, around the neighborhood. Theo feels he has outdone himself, doubling and in some cases tripling the usual level of reinforcement in his sweeping work. He would be at a loss to explain the purpose of these arrangements except in the most vague sense of protections. Protections from who, or, he thinks with a shiver, what, he cannot say. But then, that is not strictly true. Theo knows exactly what he fears. It is a darkness, something from somewhere else, that rides on a trickle of sand. A force that drove Emerald mad, choking to death on the shattered remains of the hourglass. A force recognized, yet still nameless, shapeless, formless. Theo wills these thoughts to stop, but they persist. Without bothering to turn on the lights in his hovel, he removes his boots and crumples onto the cot. Pulling his knees up to his chest, he rocks, weeping quiet tears and mumbling assurances to himself. All is as it should be. He has done his work and done it well. Why then this creeping feeling that something has been missed, forgotten? His throat chokes in a sob, and then his voice blurts, unbidden. Did you leave the stove on? For a moment, he giggles, the absurdity of his own question filling him with mirth. When he quiets, he has calmed somewhat. He lays down. It is time to rest. Yes, rest. Tomorrow there will be much, much, and more, more to do. Just as he is slipping off into the quiet bliss of sleep, a sound rouses him. Already lying prone on his bed, Theo feels his entire body go stiff. He is not alone in his room. The prophet listens, straining to hear the noise, willing it to happen again. It had been such a small sound, like a pin being dragged along a tabletop. No, not a pin, a tiny claw. Theo begins to see spots in front of his eyes and realizes he has been holding his breath. He lets it out in a slow sigh and then forces himself to inhale a deep lungful of air. He is on the verge of wondering if he imagined the sound when it comes again, 
this time followed by more of the same. Theo realizes it is the sound of a mouse moving about, somewhere in his home. Part of his mind wonders how such a thing is possible. The cloth-covered object on the table has always prevented incursions by small pests, as most creatures seem to avoid it. Whenever Theo removes his boots, without fail, they contain a quantity of dark, gritty sand. To Theo, this sand looks identical to the sand which filled the hourglass at Emeralds. The first few times he noticed the sand, he was disgusted and frightened. With fastidious care, he had secreted the sand in old plastic bags weighted down with rocks and thrown them in a duck pond. Over the years, Theo's opinion of the sand has relaxed. After all, it has never caused him direct harm. Once he noticed that bugs kept away from it, he even took to keeping a large jar full of it on the table in his home. By putting a pinch of the stuff into all of his pockets, he has also kept himself free of the usual fleas and other small creatures which might otherwise have infested someone who lived so rough. As the scritching sound continues, Theo plucks up the courage to reach over and switch on the electric lamp near his cot. The sound stops. Theo scans the room. At once, his eyes come to rest on the small table bearing the sand jar. There are mice on the table. Dozens of them. They are all staring. Not at the light, but at him. Time seems to stop. As Theo stares at the mice, he realizes that none of them are breathing. A cold feeling creeps up his spine. A cold he has not felt since, since, since the door. The black pools of the eyes of the mice are the same black as the place revealed by that open portal. Theo wants to scream, but finds his breath gone his body transfixed by this miniature horde of interlopers. With only the smallest whisper of a sound, the mice turn their gaze back toward the jar. The tiny creatures, one by one, take places on the edge of the cloth, pulling on it. Though an impossible task for a single mouse, there are dozens here, perhaps a hundred. Theo realizes with a sinking feeling that more mice are arriving by the moment, almost silent in their progress across the floor of his hovel. One edge of the cloth reaches the side of the table and the mice begin to concentrate on that corner. They climb down the side of the table, flowing onto the backs of their fellows. Before long, the cloth flops down to the floor with a soft thump. The fallen mice pick themselves up and swarm back up the table's legs, joining still more mice already waiting beneath the cloth. They crowd toward the exposed jar like a crush of penitents toward a saint. Soon they are piling atop one another to move closer to the jar the vessel almost disappears in a writhing mass of silent mice. With a scuff, the jar budges to one side. A tiny movement, but the intent of the mice seems clear. The jar begins to slide toward the edge, the progress gaining speed. Theo finds his voice and manages to croak. Wait! The mice freeze. Hundreds of tiny faces snap toward him. They regard him, little black eyes unblinking. Theo feels the cold wash over him this time with a kind of resignation. After regarding him for another long moment, the mice resume their work. Their susser is so gentle that Theo realizes if it were not for the quiet scratching noise, he would not have woken up at all. The noise comes again, but it does not emanate from the mice on his table. Instead, it comes from the far side of the room. There, in a dark corner beside his bookcase, Theo can see a figure, a shape, like a person, is just standing there, regarding him. One of the figure's hands is resting on the bookcase. With a single lumpy finger, 
The thing is caressing the bookcase as it stares at him. Scritch, scritch, scritch. Theo takes in a breath to scream, but before he can, there is a loud crash. The mice have completed their task. The jar lies shattered on the floor. As he looks up from the shattered jar, eyes wild, Theo sees the form in the corner has taken a step toward him. The towering thing is not a person at all, but a conglomeration of dead mice. How he knows the mice are dead, Theo cannot say. The thing takes another step and then dissolves down toward the floor in a writhing mass of individual mice. Without losing the momentum of their fall, they surge toward him. Like a wave running up the shore, the mice swarm onto his coat and cover his feet, then his legs. They move to cover all of him. More and more are flooding toward him. His body is awash in skittering, dead-eyed rodents. Now Theo is screaming. Even as he manages to stagger to his feet, his desperate step toward the door lands his bare foot among the shattered remains of the jar of sand. Theo's screams die away into a moan of acquiescence as he topples to the floor. The mice pile on top of him, so many that he finds he cannot move. From somewhere he hears a voice, a voice he recognizes all too well. Hello, Theo. It's good to see you again. Well, that was chapter 18. You know, I've, I've got to be honest with most of you. That chapter actually was the only part of the book that actually scared me. I was in a tiny little cabin on the lost coast of California, and there was a mouse in the walls, and I kind of started thinking about what if there was one mouse and then there were more mice and sort of more and more mice and it it just sort of turned into that image of you know all those mice pulling the the tablecloth off the table and it just it, I don't know why I found it so frightening I, I hope you all enjoyed it thank you so much for listening to Bochmancier I really put so much of my heart and soul into this book and those of you who've already commented on it either directly to me or via email or on the website or the Patreon or anything like that, thank you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. It means a lot. If you'd like to help support this podcast and help make more of it happen, there are a couple things you can do. Please share it with your friends. Tell other people. I would love to have more and more people listen to this. Also, you can support the podcast over on Patreon, either at patreon.com slash books or patreon.com slash strangely if you'd like to just support me in a more general artistic sense. I also make videos of me playing accordion and other instruments, and I take cover song requests, so there's a lot of fun to be had there. Most recently, for my patrons, I made a cover of a Violent Femmes song, (laughs) which is a little bit outside of my normal wheelhouse, but I had a good time with it, and I think a lot of other folks did too. Uh, so yeah, check those out. Feel free to drop me a line at strangelywritesbooks at gmail.com and please uh, subscribe to this podcast and also post a review. There's only two chapters left after this one and we're going to bring it all up to a conclusion that I hope all of you will enjoy. Thanks again so much for sticking with me all the way through to the end on this. I, uh, I'm in the middle of NaNoWriMo for my seventh year now and, uh, Probably what I'm writing will eventually end up on this podcast, so stay tuned. It's a little bit different than this book, but I feel like there's a lot of the same sort of DNA. It's it's about people who are maybe a little bit outside of the normal flow of society. So anyway, there's that to look forward to. Until next time, 
I hope this finds you all well, and I look forward to having you join me again for chapter 19, Three Angry Voices. <laughs>